Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Welcome to The Rest is History with me, Dominic Sandbrook, and my psychic, or my <laughs> puppet master as he calls himself, <laughs> Tom Holland. Tom, hello. Hello. Happy New Year. Um, Happy New Year. Now, we are not yet at the New Year. We're anticipating no. the New Year. So, we are very exercised, aren't we, about the B word, the word that's been on everybody's lips for the last five years or so, Brexit. And we don't know what's going to happen, which is very exciting, because our listeners will know. You'll, listen, you'll know when you're listening to this, but we don't know whether there'll be a deal, whether Britain will have forged manfully into its new future or whether we'll be um have, you know blocked up with lorries on the roads and disaster and all the rest of it um so there's an element of sort of jeopardy isn't there tom very exciting very very exciting indeed um and i think it's been heroic of us so far in the episodes we've done barely to mention brexit because i guess in a way um the arguments about it whether you are in in favor of leaving or remaining uh, was always about history um and yeah you're right they have always been about history. So that is what we thought we might focus on today, is the comparisons that people have made in the debates over the past few years um, between the Brexit that we're, we're going through now yes. and previous examples of Brexits. And so... Well, before we do that, we should quickly say, before you all turn off, we are not going to have any degree of argument about or discussion about whether Brexit was a good thing or a bad thing or, or why we did it or anything like that, are we? We're going to no. steer well clear of that and we're going to wear our historians' hats very uh, firmly. I actually suspect we don't really disagree about Brexit, so um, it wouldn't even be a very interesting podcast anyway. However, we're going to talk about all these fascinating historical comparisons. And do you want to go first, Tom? I think you've got a colossal list of possible parallels. Yes, yeah, so I've drawn up uh, what I think are the top 10 comparisons that <laughs> top, people have top made. Top 10 Brexits. <laughs> top 10 Brexits. Um, over, over, the, well, over the centuries, and not just the centuries, over the millennia. Because my first, the very first Brexit um, is the drowning of Doggerland beneath a tsunami, okay. which, which happened 8,200 years ago. Um, and Doggerland, of course, was, you know, Britain was originally attached to the continent um, with the ending of the Ice Age, enormous amounts of ice get uh, released into the sea. So the sea levels rise. And so uh, this is the, the results in the North Sea. And there seems to have been a particular kind of disaster um, when uh, there were kind of landslips um, by Norway, great tsunami, bursts across and um, leaves Britain an island. Uh, and I guess that that is a fairly fundamental event because um, the fact that Britain is an island means that geography kind of underpins pretty much everything. Yeah. Um, Are you one of these people who thinks that Britain's island nation identity is sort of fundamental to Britishness? Do you think that? Do you buy all that? I, I do think that um, the, the, the consciousness that we're separated from the mainland of Europe by that narrow strip of water is fairly fundamental. And I think that it generates exactly what we're talking about over this episode, which is this sense of push-me-pull-you, that... Yeah. Um, we can't separate ourselves completely from the continent because we're too close to it. Uh, but equally, we're um, we, the impulse to do that is always there. Um, yeah. And I think that that is why we've had all these Brexits. Can I ask you? A, can I ask you a, a question that shows my ignorance? Just about the Doggerland question. When did human beings come to Britain? 
Well, they came in waves um, and then the Ice Ages come and crunch and crash everything up and they retreat and then they come back. So there were people there who were detached from, you know, who were Brexiteers, involuntary <laughs> Brexiteers. Uh, when... Well, Brexiteers to the extent that they exit Britain, yes. Yeah. So that the, there are kind of various hominids who, who settle in Britain and then retreat when the ice comes down and then they come back. Um, but basically people have, have been continuously in Britain since the Mesolithic. Um, so they arrived in Britain, the original inhabitants, because there was this land bridge. And interestingly, there was a kind of report um, early December that said that it, it this Brexit, the Doggerland Brexit, may actually have been kind of slightly more EFTA than we'd imagined. Because they're, <laughs> they're, they're, they're arguing that... Yeah, still um, in the single were, market. <laughs> yes, that there were kind of little islands um, that were left and that they only gradually sank. So it was a, a slightly more protracted Brexit. It wasn't quite as hard a Brexit as, as people right. had assumed. Anyway, yeah. well done. We've, we've, got, we've, done the, we've, got, we've done Doggerland without making the obvious joke. So that's excellent. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> and number two, Dominic, what have you got for us? So number two, a few people uh, brought this up. So they asked about um, Rome. So Ollie Simpson, for example, um, raised, said AC Grayling had recently compared the EU with the Roman Empire, safety in numbers, quality roads, etc., apparently is a bid to make us want to be part of it, says Ollie Simpson. Now, yeah, this is an interesting thing. So this isn't really us leaving them so much as them leaving us, right? That the Romans, well, in, in the, sort of, the sort of children's history book version of our past, the Romans all leave Britain in what? Is it 410? Around about 410 they're meant to have left? Well, uh, there, there are two iterations of this. Because uh, we also have um, Andrew Sheldon comments, just Carousius. And Carousius was... Um, uh, a, a Roman general um, who had control of the, the fleet in the Channel, and he essentially grabs hold of Britain and a chunk of northern Gaul and declares his independence. And this has often been compared to Brexit. But actually, Carousius didn't want to leave the Roman Empire. He essentially wanted right. to be Roman Emperor himself. So I don't think that counts. So we're not including that. Actually, the Britons do leave as far as we can tell, they do actively the Romans do leave, a Brexit. Yeah. No, the Britons yeah. leave. Um, so Britons we have an account. Leave. Yeah, they say, so either 409, 410, as is typical with ancient history, we can't absolutely pin this down. We had, a historian says, contemporary historian says, that, that the Britons defected from Roman rule and lived their own lives independent from Roman laws. So that does sound wow. like a kind of Brexit. Steve Baker's fantasy. They then seem to have slightly repented it. Again, if th there are confusions around the sources, but it does seem the Britons write to the emperor and say, whoa, everything's going wrong. Please can we come back <laughs> here? Right. Uh, by this point, the empire's kind of imploding. And so the emperor writes back and says, you're on your own. You've got to cope. Yeah. Um, and everything goes... I mean, it has to be said that the, uh, the, the, the you know, this Brexit in the fifth century doesn't entirely go according to plan because basically the entire economy implodes. <laughs> Because um, the isn't... Roman Empire was what was what enabled the British economy to function. But this isn't a Brexit as in Britain taking a unique path, though, is it? Because, I mean, what happened to Britain at the end of this period, in sort of late antiquity, is surely exactly what happened to Spain or, you know, Gaul or, or any of the other kind of provinces of the Western Roman Empire. That they fragment, and even if we wanted to stay in the Roman Empire, there was no Roman Empire in the West anymore to, to be part of, right? I, th I think that's kind of true, but this happened, you know, the, the, the process of Rome's fall happens over several decades across the course of the 10th century. This is pretty early. And what is distinctive about it is that the 
you know, as the historian says, that the Britons take a decision to cast off Roman laws, Roman rule, and I guess Roman tax collectors. That's the, the kind of the yeah. key, the key fact. But by casting off the Roman tax collectors, they're also casting off the ability to to have a, a monetary economy, and essentially coinage vanishes for. 100, 200 years, 300 years, and it's back to barter. And that is kind of, you know, that is the Remainers' worst nightmare for what might happen to Brexit Britain (laughs) is that we all sit around bartering turnips and things. So, um, yeah, so I think think that's, that's quite an interesting one. Well, here's a quick question for you before we move on. I think the, the, the end of Roman Britain is such a fascinating subject. Um, we should do a whole podcast on it. But do people have at that stage any sense of British distinctiveness? Surely they don't. They don't feel that they are, they are unique and they are separate from other provinces of the Roman Empire in a way that is not true in Spain or in Portugal or, or wherever. Well, it's, it's really hard to know because we have so few... We, we have almost nothing written by Britons. And I think that one of the things that, that is distinctive about Britain, for instance, Britain is has, there are no British senators. And you have Gauls who laugh. There is a British poet and a, a Gaulish poet laughs at the very idea of this. So you clearly have the sense, even, you know, fourth, fifth centuries, that the, the yeah. Britons are bumpkins, are barbarians, are backward. And I think one of the measures of what makes Britain distinctive in the Roman Empire and the way that it leaves the Roman Empire is that in Britain, we do not speak a, f- a form of Latin. You do in right. Spain, you do in Italy, yeah. you do in, in France. In Britain here, we speak a Germanic language. And so clearly something, whether it's something about the relationship of Britain as a province to the rest of the empire, or whether it's about the distinctive circumstances in which Britain ceases to be Roman, but clearly the fact that we do not speak a form of Latin, I think, is the measure of just how seismic that that Brexit was. So I think that's a good one. Mm. So let's, let's put okay. that in. Put that right that's, down. A, that's definite. Um, yeah, that's a tick, isn't it? That's a that's a good. Yeah. Well, not a good Brexit, but it's a powerful parallel. Um, next, number three, I think is uh, let's let's flag up the reign of King John. Uh, we can all agree, bad king, bad king. Yes, I think the worst, probably um, a man who worst. really does seem to have been as bad as everyone says he was, and it's so <laughs> nice when uh, when the cliches and the stereotypes <laughs> turn out to be true. Um, so. His his Brexit takes comes in two waves. So he loses the um, lands that he has inherited from his father on the continent in France. Um, so in twelve oh four, he loses the Duchy of Normandy, which of course is an inheritance from William the Conqueror originally. Yeah. Um, but he's also lost all the lands further south, the, the Angevin Empire. Um, then the following year, the Archbishop of Canterbury dies, and John has his candidate. The canons at, at Canterbury have their um, candidate, and there's a kind of debate about that. But the Pope, Innocent III, who is kind of like the uber-Pope of the Middle Ages, he's incredibly yeah. powerful, um, uh, very keen on his own authority. He insists on posing his own candidate, a guy called Stephen Langton, and John refuses to allow Langton to come and, and claim the bishop, the Archbishopric of, of Canterbury. So Innocent III imposes an interdict on 1208, which basically means no services. Um, 1209, he excommunicates John. John says, well, whatever, you know, I'm fine. Let's have a hard Brexit. <laughs> you know, I will trade under WTO terms, whatever. 1213, there is a threat of a French invasion. 
And suddenly John okay. goes, oh, and he basically <laughs> sues for term. He negotiates to come back in. And not only that, but he basically makes a kind of gift of, of England to, uh, to, to Innocent III. It becomes kind of papal fiefdom, which is kind of like we have a hard Brexit and then it all goes wrong. And basically we not only yeah. do we rejoin the EU, but we sign up to the euro and we become a, a province of Belgium or something. So it's, it's, <laughs> and it's a huge humiliation. But And from that point on, Innocent III is then regards John as basically an ally and takes John's side right. against the French king. So So at this stage we have the interrupt we have the, the well, we have the arrival of um the sort of Brexiteers nightmare, which is the sort of superstate, which yes. is the Catholic Church, right? So yes. the Catholic Church is the sort of EU with with knobs on, if you like. Yes. Uh Britain is part of a supranational um, body that has authority over things. I mean, this is the big issue that's going to come up later in our next example, isn't it? Yes. The fact that the Catholic Church has authority in England over and above the king. Yes. And and this has ancient roots. I mean, this is the Pope, Gregory the Great, sends missionaries to, to England. Um, and then you have uh, other missionaries coming from Ireland and you have this huge debate at the Synod of Whitby. Um, yes. Fuck, what's the date of the Synod of Whitby? Ah, ah, we need to know that. Um, Dominic, have you got Wi-Fi time? Hold on. Then 664, you have the Synod at Whitby, a gathering of churchmen, and they decide, you know, are we going to go with the Celtic tradition or are we going to go with the Roman tradition? They go with the Roman tradition. And I guess that's the equivalent of joining the common market. So that, yeah, it's the Edward Heath. (laughs) (laughs) Anglo-Saxon Edward Heath. And then, of course, and then you have the Norman Conquest. So, so in those two ways, we're, we're, we're joined to a, a Roman model of Christianity. And then, thanks yes. to William the Conqueror, we're joined to a, um, a essentially a French-centred yeah. state. And John's reign sees an attempt to get rid... Well, I mean, John loses the Norman lands and he tries to cast off the, um, the Roman... Uh, and for church. 500 years or so, I mean, our politics is pretty much entangled with that of France, isn't it? I mean, you can't tell those yeah. two stories about France and England separately but all of this basically cues up what i think is the single biggest parallel with brexit which is the reformation the henrician reformation in the 1530s so this is the example that i know you're no longer allowed to mention his name as a historian david starkey has i mean he's described henry the eighth as the first brexiteer and it's in the 1530s i mean this seems so compelling to me because it's in the 1530s that you first get parliament um declaring that england is an empire that England is its own thing and the authority of foreign priests and prelates will not um, apply to England and that it's the king who is the supreme head and governor of England's church and that Britain is... Britain, sorry, England is distinctive, that it has an exceptional place and an exceptional destiny. And later on, of course, you get the Puritan idea that England has been chosen by God as the sort of vehicle for a purer form of Christianity and that the continental superstitious Catholic stuff, the, the, you know, the Antichrist, the Bishop of Rome, all of this kind of thing. I mean, this feels to me so central in England's identity, later Scotland's identity. Yeah, well, Scott, because you said Britain, but I mean, Scott, it is a Scottish Reformation as well. Yes. Um, you know, they're smashing up abbeys. And I, kind of incredible detail that they even went around picking up all the flowers that the monks had planted which really is... <laughs> That's attention to detail, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, yes, I mean, this is, the, this is the, the classic one, isn't it? And do you buy that? I mean, I think, I think it, this left such a massive imprint in England's sense of itself 
and England's sense of difference. And then, of course, that's compounded by the Spanish Armada and the gunpowder plot and all of these kinds of things. And I think, you know, I don't actually think it's a massive stretch to argue that that Britain's sense of its own distinctiveness vis-a-vis the EU has some vague psychological (laughs) connection to our history in the 16th century. I think that's true. But if we're talking about whether it's a a parallel, say David McCulloch, great historian of the Reformation, his point is that um, Brexit, of course, is distinctively British. Britain is the only country that's even thinking about leaving the European Union, whereas the Reformation is obviously a pan-European thing. And um, Henry's Reformation follows in the wake of what's been going on in Germany. Um, It will be hugely influenced by what happens in Switzerland. Um, It happened, you know, under Elizabeth I, um, the Protestants in England have allies in the Dutch Republic. So this is a kind of international effort. So perhaps um, whether that muddies the water, do you think? Well, it does muddy the waters a bit, doesn't it? Because you're right that the Reformation was imported into England. I mean, it was literally imported in the form of sort of pamphlets and Bibles and and this sort of stuff. But I guess it also had a distinctively English cast for two reasons. One, it was obviously generated by Henry and his carry-on with his wives. Had it not been for Anne Boleyn and whatnot, then maybe we would have gone down a much more French line. There's no reason why Protestantism was inevitably going to succeed in, in England. But also because in England it's bound up with the monarchy, isn't it? I mean, there's so Protestantism in England becomes bound up with a kind of patriotic loyalty to the state yeah. in a way that's maybe not quite the case in Germany or in some of these other places, in Switzerland or something. And that, in turn, queues up our next Brexit, um, which I think we could, uh, the, the protectorate um, under Cromwell, um, yeah. which is ushered in by the execution of Charles I. And you were talking about the kind of sacral role that the monarch plays in uh, the Reformation, but of course, by chopping off a king's head, the revolutionaries in England are really, really um, flicking a V-sign at the whole of Europe. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And I think by this stage, what you definitely have... So I, I think Henry, you know, Henry clearly, Henry VIII in the 1530s, he, he picked up these sort of Reformation arguments because they suited him, because they would make him rich. He'd be able to get all the monasteries' money and because he would get, you know, the wife he wanted. But I think what you have in the 17th century that is distinctive from the 16th century is you have a much more profound, a genuine ideological sense of distinctiveness, don't you? So somebody like Oliver Cromwell, he really thinks that England has been chosen by God, that it is the new Jerusalem, that England has this sort of unique fate to lead the rest of the world, or maybe to to let the rest of the world sink into depravity while it becomes this sort of pristine promised land. I think that's that's not quite there in the, the century before that. I guess there is an element. I mean, there's a strand in um, <clears throat> among Brexiteers who, I guess, had hoped that Brexit would set up a chain reaction, that uh, what Britain yeah. has done would serve as a kind of model. Uh, and I guess a lot of the European Union's policy towards Brexit has been a determination not to allow that to happen. But that was certainly something under the protectorate that um, enthusiasts for it hoped that England would serve as a kind of light um, to help uh, a European continent benighted with popery and whatever um, discover the truth of God. Um, and in that context, as we've got an interesting um, tweet from Pat Roberts, who's talking about great writers in, uh, in English literature. 
Um, he says, Defoe remain, Swift leave, uh, Byron remain, Blake leave, Thackeray remain, Trollope leave, Virginia Woolf remain, Arnold Bennett leave. But at the top, he's got Shakespeare remain and Milton leave. And of course, Milton is Cromwell's um, yes. secretary. He's the guy who is essentially speaking to the people of Europe, explaining Brexit, if you want, put it yeah. in those, explaining what's been happened, why it's been done, and definitely kind of hoping that um, that what's going on here will serve to kind of light uh, the, the the rest of Europe. So kind of, I, they're a vague. I, I, I buy Milton as a leader. Shakespeare, I, I suppose I buy Shakespeare as a Remainer, but he's probably, I don't see him as a people's voter. No, I don't think Shakespeare would have voted. <laughs> I think he, <laughs> I think, uh, I mean, Falstaff is a leaver, isn't he? Falstaff is a yeah, but Falstaff gets rejected. I mean, and Henry V, who then goes on and invades France. Yeah, I mean, he's he's massively invades in favour of the European Union. <laughs> just he wants to run it. <laughs> yes. yeah. Well, on that note, I think we should um, should we take a break before we um, get involved with the next the second tranche of our yes, because we've we've done one to five, so uh, come back okay. and we'll get from six Real. to ten. This episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. Bottling everything up is never a good idea. It can have terrible consequences. For instance, look at all the conflicts throughout history. I wonder how many of them could have been solved if they just talked things out. And Tom, I have a confession for our listeners. As you know, I've been really struggling with anxiety about the massive series that we've got coming on the rest of history, all the prep we have to do for that series on the French Revolution, the First World War. I mean, it's all mounting up, isn't it? And when we talked it out, I felt so much better now that I got all those crippling anxieties and insecurities off my chest. If you want to talk, you can always talk to me. But if not, then I highly recommend therapy. It can help you learn positive coping skills and how to set boundaries. Therapy isn't just for those who've experienced major trauma. It empowers you, Dominic, to be the best version of yourself. If you want to give therapy a try, why not check out BetterHelp? It's entirely online, it's convenient and flexible, and it's really easy to get started. You just fill out a brief questionnaire and they'll match you with a licensed therapist. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash restishistory today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash restishistory. Welcome back to The Rest is History uh, with me, Dominic Samrick, and Tom Holland, and we are talking about Brexit parallels. Now, one thing that's always interested me, Tom, is this stuff about global Britain, which is so popular with Brexiteers. So they believe, you know, we should lift our heads from the muddy fields of Flanders and look to the wide open seas and to Singapore and our former colonies and all this kind of business. And I guess a key moment in that, probably the key moment in it, actually, in the sense of Britain being a global enterprise is the Seven Years' War. So that's 1756 to 1763. And that's a moment, I think, when you can see Britain getting a slightly different sense of itself as a, as a, as a world power. You know, our frontiers are in the South Atlantic and the Pacific and in Canada and so on, in India, India particularly. And do you think that's a key moment in our sense of ourselves and our sort of sense of Britain's place in the world? Yes, it Britain is, I mean, as you say, is at war, particularly with France. So, kind <laughs> of recurring theme. Yeah. Um, and, of course, Britain does have allies on the continent, notably um, uh, Frederick the Great. But a sen- and, and, of course, the, the King of England, 
King of Britain is um, yeah. also the, the Elector of Hanover. So, so there are, you know, Britain isn't completely cut off from the continent. But basically, it's the first time where the, th- the main theatres of war are, for Britain, are, as you say, on, in North America, Canada, India, on the ocean. Um, and I do think that that kind of establishes, that, that is kind of quite important for establishing this idea that Britain looks to the seas. And of course, it isn't only Brexiteers who have um, pushed that. General de Gaulle did as well. I mean, that was the reason he gave for, for vetoing Britain's application, right. was that yes. Britain looks to the seas. Um, I, think, I mean, I think the, the idea that um, Brexit happened because uh, Leavers wanted to restore the British Empire, I think has been quite an important strand in Remain hostility to Brexit. Yeah, though I don't think it's very well founded, personally. I don't think... If you look at polls, I don't believe that people have any... I mean, people don't know anything about the British Empire at all. No. I think it's, it's much more Little England than Global Britain, They actually. retreat to hobbit holes and... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the Shire folk. Yeah, but but I think that, that to the degree that, um, you know, the Gaullist argument that Britain looks to the seas, the, um, the Remainer argument that this is all about empire, Seven Years' War is a kind of crucial moment where suddenly Britain's main focus is moving from the continent to the broader sea. So yeah. I think that's a good one. I think that's... Have, have you read... There's a great... There's a history of the Seven Years' War by a fellow called Brendan Sims. Have you ever read this? It's about 7,000 pages long. Um, and Brendan Sims's argument was always... And Brendan Sims completely disagrees with what we've just said. He says Britain's focus was always Europe and Britain always cared more about Europe than this empire. But his sort of... He's a controversial figure among historians and his credibility was slightly damaged for me a couple of years ago, just before the EU referendum, when he said that this... He believed Britain was about to play a leading role in the EU and would be the Prussia of sort of German unification of the EU. Yes, the European outcast, loathed yeah. and despised by everybody else in Europe. Well, maybe it came to you. I think Brendan Sims is a really interesting writer, I think, on yeah. Britain's relationship to Europe and Ireland's relationship to Britain and the whole nexus. Well, we'll come back to Ireland. Let's come back yeah, to Ireland. Yeah, we will, we will. Because we've got another big Franco, Anglo-Franco dust-up to come, haven't we? which is, of course, the Napoleonic Wars. So that, that is coming in at number seven. Um, and basically, this is a Brexit that is forced on Britain because Napoleon yes. has conquered the whole of continental Europe, enforces the continental system where um, British goods are not allowed to uh, enter the European markets and the British army is um, unable to, uh, to land anywhere on the mainland, except, of course, for um, Portugal. Yeah, the Peninsula War. The attempt to reverse Brexit, which culminates ultimately at Waterloo, I guess. Yeah, and this is sort of going the other way, though, isn't it? Because we're we're keen to get into Europe just yeah. in a very armed way, and uh, Napoleon wants to keep us out. So he's De Gaulle in this analogy, I suppose. Yeah, I think. I, I mean, I think that um, the the French suspicion of, of Britain and the desire to exclude Britain from um, from the common market was obviously a, a, a huge theme. And it does seem at the moment, and obviously we're recording this, we don't know how, whether there's going to be a deal or not, but it does seem that the main um, continental leader uh, blocking a, a deal is President Macron. Um, so yeah. it's got me. <laughs> there are clearly kind of quite deep roots here. Well, this is the sort of frog and the scorpion, isn't it? You know, why did you, why did you sting me or whatever it is? Yes, because it's in my nature. I mean, the, the, the French wouldn't be the French. if they, I mean, it wouldn't be right for them to... Just, just wave it through and wish us the best. I mean, that wouldn't be, they wouldn't be yes, true to themselves. And I think, I think the, uh, the, the way that the government um, <laughs> was saying how they're going to board French fishing ships and they're mo- mobilising the Navy yeah. and everything, um, and, and lots of comments saying this is ridiculous, sabre-rattling. But obviously, actually, I think quite a 
substratum of opinion in Britain quite keen on the idea of sending the Royal Navy into the channel against the French. I was about to say, there must be quite a a large proportion of people who go into politics who fantasise that at some point they'll be able to mobilise the uh, the Navy against the French, right? I mean, that's why you go into politics in the first place. That that is the kind of the dark anxiety of anyone watching uh, (laughs) Gavin Williamson. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. But there is an interesting point here, Tom, which is that Napoleon, you know, he, he exercised this huge sort of, um, he had this big role in the British imagination. And there was always a sense in which, you know, the Napoleonic codes and decimalization and Napoleon sort of, <clears throat> Napoleon is this enlightened despot who to some degree is driven by a belief in reason and a belief in reordering things and a more rational way of doing things. And that Britain has always seen itself as apart from that. Yeah. So, I mean, decimalization is a very good example of a Napoleonic innovation from which Britain stood aloof for, you know, for more than a century, basically. I once wrote a column which had the headline, um, I think it said something like, Dominic Sambrook looks back on the moment Britain lost its national soul. And, <laughs> it's nothing to be proud of. I can't believe you're and basing it was about, about And it was about the moment that we adopted a decimal currency. <laughs> Yeah, you are the new Duke of Wellington. You're not doing yeah. any of that Napoleonic nonsense. So that's quite a good one. I mean, that's kind of it's it, it's a it's um it stands us on its head because that's us wanting to join and not being allowed to. Anyway, so Napoleonic Wars is number seven. So uh, yeah. what have we got at eight? So number eight is splendid isolation, and I suppose this isn't a moment. This is more of a sort of theme, isn't it? This is the sort of late nineteenth century. Uh, Britain sees itself as you know. It's now we're now quite clearly top nation we have the empire the empire assumes this sort of colossal role in the in britain's political imagination the defense of india is our is our leading uh, priority and for people like lord salisbury the tory prime minister at the end of the 19th 30 20th century this sense that britain should avoid international entanglement should stand apart so for example the franco-prussian war which we talked about in our first world war podcast that happens in 1870-71. There's no question of Britain getting involved in it. And there's a there's a sense, I think, quite a strong sense in late 19th century Britain, that Britain is somehow above European, sort of petty European alliance politics. Of course, that was to prove not the case. But I think that, again, psychologically has left a deep imprint in that people still, this sort of isolationism. Yeah, it's kind of fogging the channel, continent cut off. Continent cut off, exactly. Yes, exactly. And I think... Um, you know, we saw how wrong that was with the First World War when, you know, we did the very opposite of a Brexit. We piled in. But I think imaginatively, Tom, that's left a, a very long legacy, don't you? Well, isn't it the case that almost invariably where you think there's a long historical tradition, it turns out to have been invented by the Victorians? And <laughs> it, yes. it may be that everything that we've been talking about, this kind of sense of um, Britain being an island and separate and distinct and everything that animated the Brexit vote... Um, is basically a legacy of that late Victorian <laughs> sense of itself when, yeah. when we, you know, when, when we really were kind of isolated because we had the Navy. So nobody could cross the sea without our permission. And we, our, our investments were all global. Um, and I think that, 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 that perhaps, you know, the, the cast of thought, maybe that is something that lingers. Don't know. Yeah, no, I think it does. I think it's that sort of sense, isn't it, that there's sort of people in Buenos Aires playing rugby and talking about beef and that Britain has some has become this much more global enterprise, and that the politics of Belgium and Luxembourg and whatnot seems so small scale. Although, I mean, Britain acts as a guarantor for Belgium, 
right? Yeah, of and, course. And and Israeli and is negotiating with Bismarck, and so so Britain isn't in. I mean, we're not as yeah. gloriously isolated as no, as no, perhaps never. the uh, the myth would have it. The glorious isolation is more. It, it's a sort of. It's an aspiration, I think, as as much as a reality. Yeah, and it, you know, we were talking about the historian Brendan Sims. He would say, "This is all rubbish," and actually, Britain was always profoundly entangled with European yeah. politics. I mean, yeah. that's the fascination of this subject, isn't it? It's yeah. actually quite apart from the sort of the ranting and raving of the various partisans. It's such a fascinating subject because, rather like I think, rather like Russia, Britain has always been in this position where it is clearly part of the continental system and part of Europe, and yet at the same time feels itself pulled away from it. And that will never be resolved. And and the effect of all these historical episodes is to kind of double ratchet it up, because in the present there is this sense, and then it gets enhanced and turbocharged by kind of distorted myths and memories of how the past had operated. On both sides, though, on both sides. So the Brexiteers think that we've always been different mm-hmm. and Remainers say, oh no, you've always been completely European, you had European monarchs and blah, 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 blah. And they both, as you say, they um, they sort of double down on the on the sort of historical myth-making. And talking of historical myth-making, we now come to number nine. This is slightly different um, and is uh, prompted by a, a tweet from Pat Roberts, um, who says the ERG versus Theresa May. So the ERG, the, the kind of the Spartan... The Spartans, the peop- the hardcore Brexiteers versus Theresa May is De Valera versus Michael Collins. Are you really leaving if you're still taking the oath? So that's a reference to um, not Britain leaving Europe, but Ireland leaving the United Kingdom. And yeah. I think that is a kind of interesting one because um, Ireland leaving the United Kingdom, it was leaving a kind of single market um, yes. it was le- leaving a union of nations, um, everyone said this will be economically disastrous. Went ahead anyway. Did turn out to be economically difficult. And one of the things that that was difficult for Ireland was that it basically remained within the tractor beam of the British economy. Um, yes, really, right the way up until joining the common market. Um, and I guess that the the remain argument is that that will be the fate of Britain. That that we may formally leave the European Union but our economy will not be strong enough to escape the tractor beam. Um, so effectively, we will be uh, dependent, but without any say. And so that was the argument against Irish independence. Well, that is the argument. Um, but also there's another dimension to it, Tom, which is I think that um, people often talk about Britain rejoining the EU. They sort of say, well, you know, you'll realise your mistake and or we'll realise our mistake and we will we'll go back. But of course, very quickly in Ireland, I mean, there had been a lot of debate within Ireland about whether to leave the UK. But once the decision was made, and I think this is always the case when somebody secedes from a union or becomes independent, once the decision is made, it becomes the status quo incredibly quickly and it becomes very, very hard to row back. So if you'd said to somebody in Ireland in 1951, let's say, do you not regret it now? Do you think you should rejoin the United Kingdom? I mean, they would have laughed at you. It seemed such a ludicrous suggestion. It would have seemed impossible to rejoin the UK. Although I suppose the difference is that um, there's a kind of legacy of overt imperialism, uh, yes, that, that that has poisoned relations between, I suppose, particularly England and, and Ireland for centuries and centuries, um, and that hasn't been the case with Europe. No, it hasn't. But of course, if you're a very keen Brexiteer, you would say, you know, the Irish look to their history and they and they see a story of separateness and distinctiveness that has finally been vindicated, or has finally been, you know, we've finally uh, sort of redeemed the suffering of the past and a brexiteer would say well we've you know they would similarly point to a distinctive history and they would say this is merely the culmination 
of that long history. Of course, not a history that has a sort of a sense of suffering in it in the same way. But I think, isn't this what countries always do when they leave unions or when they Absolutely, become yes. independent? They they then create a nationalist sort yep. of historiography of which this is merely the crowning glory. Yes. Um, but I guess, I mean, just to reiterate, I think that the difference is that it is hard for Brexiteers, although maybe some of the more extreme ones have tried to cast the European Union as an embodiment of imperialism as, or yeah, as an oppressor. You know, causing famines or, you know, committing <laughs> massacres in, in uh, Drogheda or whatever. I mean, that, that, there isn't, that, that isn't really part of the narrative. However, lurking behind all of that, the, the attitude towards the continent is perhaps the most recent Brexit. So what do we have at number 10, Dominic? Well, I, I think this is a this is a very yeah. <laughs> this is the fu- the funnest Brexit, <laughs> which is Dunkirk. So Dunkirk is a literal Brexit. I mean, we literally leave European soil. Of course, again, like all Brexits, it's kind of muddy because we we take some French and some Belgian soldiers with us. We rely very much on the French and the Belgians to kind of shield our retreat. Um, and there's that you know all that famous stuff about. Uh, George the Sixth saying to Churchill that he feels much better after Dunkirk because we no longer have any allies that we have to be nice to. <laughs> but of course we do because we've got all the poles flying. Yeah, and we've got anyway, and... There's, that, there's sort of the famous cartoon in the Evening Standard of the yeah. the Tommy standing on the cliffs, shaking his fist at the clouds and saying, "Very well then, alone." And right. obviously, Dunkirk as a Brexit has played a massive role in our sense of ourselves. Right. So clearly, the, the mythology of it has been important and the readiness of certain Tory MPs to uh, vote the Second World War whenever the topic yeah. of Brexit comes up Mark has been... Uh, very inaptly named. <laughs> has been, and Nigel Farage, uh, has been a kind of running um, running feature of the, the Brexit debate. It's not remotely accurate, is it? Because the European Union can in no way be compared to Nazi Germany. I mean, no, although, of course, people have tried. I think there's a, isn't there a book by um, Andrew Roberts, a novel called The Aachen Memorandum, (laughs) which is even got the kind of gothic script of the title. It's done in a sort of Germanic script. I think it was published in the mid 1990s. And um, that's about, uh, I think it's a plot for a Fourth Reich or or something like that. I mean, not even the most vituperative Brexiteer. I can absolutely see that the um, that the mythology of it, very well alone, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we won the Second World War. Blah blah. I mean, that's that is clearly a crucial part of the the kind of emotional swirl. As a parallel, it's a terrible parallel. Well, I mean, all these parallels. Are, I mean, te- parallels by their nature. Yeah, of course, are but I think this terrible, is a particularly a particularly terrible parallel. But I think this is. I mean, I think if I was picking two that mattered. Okay, so we've we've gone through the ten. We've gone through the ten. Let's. Should we pick out our top three? Right, okay. Okay, and we're not saying the most accurate, because I, none of them are accurate. I mean, these are all incredibly tendentious parallels. I mean, that's the nature of these yeah. parallels. Let's uh, say or indeed the of this one... podcast. <laughs> yes, absolutely. But let's, <laughs> let's say the ones that um, hold up the most interesting mirror. Okay, so if I was picking, I mean, your first one, which a lot of people would have thought was sort of very spurious, which is the Dogland one. I mean, you can argue that really matters, right? I think it's the most important. I think it's the single most important. Because Britain I think is an the, island. Yeah, the geography is, is fundamental. I would include that. I would include... Uh, I would personally definitely include the Reformation. Would you include the Reformation? Definitely. This is disappointing. Oh. <laughs> yeah, because the Reformation is... is t- To the degree that, that, you know, that there is a parallel, I think it's... Because 
when the when the when the, the Reformation came in, you were rejecting um, a whole corpus of of laws and yeah. assumptions and proprieties, and you were definitely setting yourself at odds with the major powers on the continent. So I think that, the, the, yeah, I think that's a, probably yeah. the the least tendentious parallel of of the lot. You see, if I was picking, I mean, it's not a, it's not a very successful parallel as we've said, but in terms of mattering. I think Dunkirk and the Second World War. I think you get, you, you know, the se- without the Second World War, you don't get Brexit. I mean, obviously you don't because the history is different, but the Second World War placed that sort of dad's army, Dan Buster's view of Britain and indeed of Europe is so huge in people's sense of their own national identity. Um, and I think it matters so much that Britain is the one major European country that goes through both world wars without being occupied and without being defeated. And it means the way we tell the story of the 20th century in which the EU is created is very different from how every other European country tells that story. Don't you think Dunkirk matters? OK, if, if we, based on the fact that we're talking about the most interesting mirror, I, I will, I'll grant you that. I do, I do think you, it's played a crucial role in... Are, are you gutted of, we didn't choose King John? Quite disappointed. Yeah, quite disappointed. <laughs> well, you see, there are a number, of the, there are a number on these that... that um, if you're expecting the worst, and to reiterate, we don't know whether um, people, yeah. even as we speak, are, are squabbling over turnips out on the streets. So if that's the case, if it's if there has been no deal and it's all gone disastrously wrong and planes are dropping from the air, then yeah. um, the, the Roman Brexit, that might be a good comparison. And yeah. the John one would be interesting in terms of, you know, if it goes spectacularly wrong, will we perhaps have to go back cap in hand? Um, the Irish one, I think, is also interesting that even if that happens, probably not. Let me ask you a question, Tom, about the Roman Brexit, uh, which I find so fascinating. When the Romans left, I mean, did they leave? Did people, who left? Surely, I mean, the number of people who actually physically left must have been pretty small. Well, what essentially what happens is that um, Britain has a large number of uh, military forces in it um, because there are uh, enemies, North Adrian's Wall in Ireland, um, increasingly coming across the North Sea. So there are large quantities of forces in Britain. And as um, the centre implodes on the continent, so it becomes incredibly appealing for Roman commanders in Britain to have a crack at becoming emperor. And so they increasingly strip the province of uh, its garrisons, take them across the channel. They invariably lose. So ultimately, what's happened by the beginning of the 5th century is that you no longer have any garrisons, really. You don't really have any Roman forces left. And yet the Britons have still been required to pay the taxes. So I think that that's essentially what precipitates um, the the, uh, well, the the kind of, you know, we're Brexiting. Their EU budget contributions are not seeing a a decent return. Yeah, exactly. Exactly so. Um, So... Yeah, interesting. But I agree. I totally agree about you that we must do a podcast on the end of Roman Britain. I think it would be yeah. very, very interesting. Our, one of our New Year's resolutions. Yes. Uh, anyway, so um, hope you've enjoyed that. Um, wishing you a very happy New Year and um, as good a Brexit as we can hope. And um, hope everything in twenty twenty one is better than it's been in twenty twenty. Thanks very much for listening. Goodbye. Thanks for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, please sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's 
restishistorypod.com. Listener.